Hey up and welcome back to Paul Ask. This podcast episode is recorded in partnership with The Civic in Barnsley, an arts centre in South Yorkshire. It has been programmed as part of their No Boundaries season, which is running until spring 2022. No Boundaries is a season of exhibitions, performances, community projects and workshops amplifying the voices and creativity of disabled artists as well as other communities underrepresented in the arts. It also explores the barriers that those communities face in society. Art and activism by disabled people has historically been the reason access rights and awareness has been improved. You can find out more about the Civic and their No Boundaries programme at barnsleycivic.co.uk. This episode will explore the experiences and the intersections of being working class and having a disability. Welcome to Paulas, a podcast about real life experiences from the mouths of legit working class people. Hiya! Hey up! I'm Selena. And I'm um, just a couple of Paulasses doing a podcast. Hey up, Selena, how are you doing? I, uh, I'm alright. Yeah, a bit tired, as you know, that's my general state of being. How are you? <laughs> Perma tired. Uh, do you know what? <laughs> yeah. I'm actually like. I'm obviously buzzing about this episode, but at the same time, I'm halfway through the final episode of Manhunt starring the man, the legend, Martin Clunes, and they've just got the guy, and I'm like, oh my god, but what happens now? There's half an hour left. That's all you can think about. <laughs> <laughs> so that's uh, that's where my head's at, but let's get down to it. Have you had your tea yet, or are you having it after this? I'm having it after, because I'm going to have my tea and watch Strictly. Um, so yeah, but then I realised I didn't really have any dinner, so Oof. now I feel a bit like confused. Yeah, I know. I had some chips at like twelve, but then oh, I was like, "This is really my dinner." I know. I've made an error. I think it's going to be a struggle. Let's hope you don't get too hangry three quarters of the way through this, eh? <laughs> Start raging in um, the background. <laughs> yeah. Chucking my mic on the floor. I just can't do it anymore. Storming out. Can't take um, these conditions. You <laughs> um, sensible. Oh, of course. I always have early teas, me. Um, so I decided to do a Sunday dinner for Saturday night tea because I'm a rebel. Do you know what? I almost thought, I almost, I was thinking that, you know. Wow. It's like we're on the same. Imagine. <laughs> I have roasted some potatoes, but yeah. You can't beat it. You can't beat moving when traditional dinners should be to rogue times. It's like when you have breakfast for tea, best. (laughs) (laughs) I just love a breakfast for tea, me. Um, So, as those who have listened to the first episode of this mini-series, as part of No Boundaries will know, we will have a special guest joining us. So... I always want to be like, special guests, reveal yourself, <laughs> like like a proper ITV game show. And they're coming through the curtain. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but anyway, in a sort of less campy, well, to be fair, it is Saturday night, so it is quite the, the night for a game show vibe. Um, yeah. Let's, uh, let's welcome our guests for today. Um, hi, Sarah, step into the light from the darkness. Hello. I would quite like a stars in their eyes type reveal talking like that. I think it would be quite lovely. Some dr- some dry ice. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Hello. 
very suitable. Uh, Sarah, what have you had for your tea? I have had a spicy chilli tomato pasta with two types of cheese on it. Ooh. It was a BBC good food Ooh. recipe because yesterday I was just like, I never know what to make and just went on BBC good food and just looked at every single menu I could find on there and meals on it. And I was like, yes, I can make this. So that's what we had. Pretty jell of that. What are these that two cheeses? Uh, mozzarella and cheddar. Ooh, the best two. Yeah, because my husband was like, yeah. yeah, husband was like, do you want cheddar? And I was like, no. And he was like, well, I'm having it. And I was like, okay, then. <laughs> so I was like, if you do it, I'll have some. <laughs> but I basically don't want to grace any. So that was how I got the second cheese. The, honestly, those two together, ooh, yes. Yeah. Never a bad move, that. Never a bad move. No. So, Sarah... Yes. Uh, again, I'm going with this, like, I don't know what, why. It, maybe, maybe I should do more recordings on a Saturday night when I'm feeling like a show host. Yeah, um, party. <laughs> there it is. So, Sarah, so tell us. Uh, tell us about yourself in a non-awkward, weird way, because we're all friends here. You know, Okay. What's your name? Where'd you come from and all that? Yeah, I so I'm Sarah. <laughs> Blind Go. gate vibe. I know, yeah. I used to love that. My mum used to get ready for her night out on a Saturday and I used to just sit putting all the makeup on and watching Blind Date while she got ready and it was the best. Dreamy. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> anyway, I'm Sarah and I'm originally from Doncaster Woo-woo! and I now live in Sheffield, which I much prefer um, because I moved here sort of at the end of uni and just stayed basically and it just became home. I think I had this dream that I would moved to Sheffield and just live in a pulp video. And I think I did for a few years, but now I definitely don't live in a pulp video anymore. Well, I would say that your outfits could definitely still be in the year 2000 video for sure. Yeah, yeah. I think I still dress like it and, yeah, probably a little bit. (laughs) I live in a terrace house. There is wood chip in our spare room that's never getting pulled off because no one wants to deal with that in their DIY life. So we've just piled all our record racks in there and pretended it doesn't exist. (laughs) (laughs) No, no thanks, Woodship. Nope. So you are joining us today as part of No Boundaries. Do you want to explain to us? Do you want to explain to us? Explain yourself, Sarah. Yeah. (laughs) What brings Um, you here today? um, So I'm going to be talking about my later in life diagnosis of autism. Um, which was delivered in 2019, that I'm quite proud of myself for self-advocating my way through the entire process, when at times I was just like, how am I managing to do this? So, yeah. So let's start then with, you know, what does it mean to you to like use the word autism or autistic? Like, how how do you describe yourself? Do you use those words? Um, you know obviously there's lots of different ways to talk about this stuff and and everybody has their own way of kind of identifying with certain phrases etc like how how do you feel about those phrases and also while we're here as well how do you feel about the word disability like do you consider yourself disabled do you feel okay using that phrase Um, and let's start there yeah cool um so personally prefer autistic and I refer to myself as an autistic person um I use autism in the terms of if I'm talking about it sort of on the whole and I have autism but it's not just one thing obviously it's everybody's so different that is autistic and sometimes you use words so that the people you're talking to can 
appreciate it on sort of a level that they understand because they've probably not sort of gone down the wormholes you have whilst researching it. But if you talk to them sort of on a less personal level, you sort of separate yourself from it so that you can have discussions with people without sort of putting yourself out there and in front of it all and feeling responsible. But I do prefer autistic. Um, but it's hard. How do you introduce yourself? It's hard to sort of, you know, I feel like I'm in sort of some sort of secret club where there's only certain people that I outright talk to about it and other people I just don't which then I guess leads me to that point of the feeling about the word disability because it is a disability because it affects you every single day and so many instances it plays a big part but again there's such a stigma around that you don't look disabled therefore people just think you're not so you don't want to use things that might help you like I use the sunflower lanyard in particularly stressful situations or like if I need to use an accessible toilet because I don't fancy going in a big toilet with 30 people all don't know shouting and using hand dryers and banging doors and stuff but I do feel when I come out of the accessible loop people are like mm-hmm, really <laughs> you think you want to be like I am <laughs> but you can't just tell strangers and also you shouldn't have to well yeah exactly right so i guess on that one then do you um kind of have the feeling that so i know you've listened to the first episode with rachel and and rachel talked about this kind of like imposter syndrome almost to do with um when a disability is invisible like how do you feel about that do you share the same thoughts as she does or do you have any different thoughts on that yeah it's a similar feeling that I think with an invisible disability, you do play around with the idea of, am I severe enough? How how do I exist with these difficulties that nobody else can often see? But want people to understand that they exist and how they can help just in the general wider world. How can they help people that might just need a bit of kindness or buffering around them? But you can't outright reach out and ask people to do it because you feel like they might not believe you. So even though you know it of yourself, you're sort of thinking, you know, I think you sort of, I was brought up with that. There's always someone who's got it worse. And, you know, it's sort of, I think that's designed to just shut everybody up, isn't it? There is always someone who's got it worse. So it just sort of makes you go oh, well, you know, things aren't so bad. I'll just get on with what I'm doing and stuff. But I think it's a really dangerous thing to fall into for everybody because just because someone's got it worse or different doesn't mean what you're experiencing isn't hard or difficult yourself. Yeah, definitely. And, like, if we go into the murky waters of class, like when you said you were brought up with this idea of, um, you know, everybody's... Like, there's, there's people out there that have got it worse. It's absolutely yeah. one of those put-up-and-shut-up working-class yeah, things, it is. Isn't it? Yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah. You know, you've not got it that bad, or you've got it this good, and then you get told exactly how good it is, and you're like, yeah, I know all that's good, but it's still really hard. Oh, my mum's favourite saying when I was little was, I'll give you something to cry about, and I used to think, what? <laughs> what are you going to do? I'm already crying. <laughs> 
like, what are you going to do? This definitely like, made me deserve to cry more than I am. And yeah, I think that was just one of those mummisms from the working class. You know, it was like, I ain't got time to deal with this. So stop it, basically. Which then, you know, that's a big deciding factor in not learning to not speak up because you don't think you're allowed. <laughs> so you have never thought about it in the sense that it's to shut you up, like you, like you literally said. But yeah, and I guess it is like, so then I don't have to, I don't want to worry about it. So if we just say someone's worse off than us, let's just deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. So then you do, you just grow up thinking, I don't, I shouldn't talk about that or, you know, I shouldn't. Yeah, I shouldn't complain. Yeah, I I shouldn't feel bad bad about these things and just, you know, get on with it. And, you know, I'll do my 50 hour a week job that's really hard and make me feel like I'm just going to break down constantly but you've got a job so I think enjoy it you know it's like flip side you can't enjoy the it's like you shouldn't have to sorry you shouldn't have to prove either should you yeah that's it it's like you feel like you're having to like, justify why you feel bad without yeah allowing yourself to just feel bad because you are actually allowed to just not feel great about things sometimes yeah and like with it like hidden disability you shouldn't have to be walking around telling everybody. Like, yeah, I am allowed to use the accessible toilet, and I'm going to prove to you why. Because, why? Yeah, here's you know. my letter of diagnosis. It's the only yeah. evidence I actually have. Here you go. Laminate it and carry yeah. it around to show you every time you you scowl at me. Yeah. Ugh, grim. So, Sarah, in terms of like, obviously, we've covered how you use the terms sort of autism and autistic. But what does it mean to you? So obviously everybody can go on Google, right? And they can look at Instagram yeah. memes and they can figure out for themselves like what autism means. But what does it mean to you? Like what what is it um, from your experience? Um, the experience of sort of realising that I could possibly be autistic was beginning to feel massively like I was finding things much harder than my peers and wondering why I was finding things so much harder um and I was diagnosed with severe depression and anxiety in my late teens and it felt like that but there was absolutely no low mood I felt pretty good but I just felt like I couldn't function on a day-to-day basis with what everybody else seemed to be doing and I was thinking why am I not able to do it And it was only through a friend of a friend who was also diagnosed later in life, who is quite good at sort of doing advocacy work. And she would share interesting articles on social media and I'd have a read and bits and bobs. And slowly I was thinking, you know, surely this isn't me. It all applies. But like I've said before, you think it's not visible. So can it be true? Um. And bit by bit, I'd start to piece it together. And I had not spoken to anybody about it. I was just in my head, like, sort of, you know, spinning it round and round and round and thinking, why? Why am I finding basic things more difficult now? And it was after having a baby, basically. And everybody else seemed to just have had babies and still have their life together in one piece and doing things. Whereas it was like, in order to focus my attention on my baby, I had to remove my attention from any any other thing that could possibly derail my focus 
and it was really hard because I was struggling to you know get out and exercise or stay in touch with friends or think what to cook for my tea it was like everything was just really really hard and eventually I messaged this friend of a friend and just said I don't want to be offensive by saying this but I really think there is a chance I am autistic and have you got any articles that you could forward to me so I could have a bit of a better read and the best thing she ever said was I always just thought you were and I was like oh wow that's really validating actually that another person that has seemingly gone through similar steps to me just felt this sort of kinship with me and just thought I already was so it was just quite a relief to sort of hear another actually autistic person say yes these things are very relatable I've always related to you on those similar tangents of our lives that they just seem very similar to each other and she did just give me lots of articles to read particularly ones focusing on the female or atypical presentation and particularly those who have gone on into later life before sort of being shaken off their tracks and going oh actually this is why it's harder than everybody else seemingly I know people probably haven't got their stuff together have they and everything's just a facade of the good bits of their life but I genuinely at points was just like what's going on like I can't do things on a daily basis and I, I was just constantly exhausted and worried about the smallest things and it was it was nice to sort of then be able to channel that energy of fear and feeling stressed out all the time and go the more you research it the more you sort of go yeah that's you know that's it a lot of sort of my history with the anxiety and depression and eating disorders things like that they all tie in together and it sort of made a little umbrella over all the other little subcategories of difficulties in my life and it made it seem less scary because obviously without without it I felt like I was just sort of spinning loose and I didn't know what was going to happen but with this over it now it gives me like a sort of rational feeling that I can go okay this is why it feels so hard what can I do to make myself feel better and I'm finding ways now that I probably would have never dared do but now I do like stimming and you know forcefully taking time out of difficult situations to say I'm done with this I need to just go and have half an hour on my own and going and doing it and not feeling guilty whereas before you just keep going and going and going because you don't say I can't do this anymore so Sarah you touched on there about the fact that autism in women is you know underdiagnosed it's well a bit of a contentious thing right there is debates even now in the real like I was reading something that there was a study being done in Leeds I think it was about a month ago, um, trying to constantly disprove that women can actually be autistic. Yeah, <laughs> it's like it's, it's mad wild. stuff. It feels like there's just this community of autistic people, and then there's subsections within it, and some of them cross over, and some of them have just still got the worst deal out of it all because, like you say, they're saying women can't be autistic and you know the classic male brain approach to it and I think that's why the younger generation are still at risk of girls not being diagnosed because they're still using criteria that doesn't encapsulate a lot of 
what this female atypical presentation is of masking and actually wanting to be social. I don't think you want to have friends, but it's like, I do want to have friends, but sometimes my brain just tells me, no, you can't do that. So you don't do it or, you know, you shy away from things. But you do still want to sort of have meaningful friendships and relationships, but you just do it differently. And the people that get you still allow you to be within a friendship circle and just accept that you are autistic and sometimes you might just remove yourself from the group chat because you can't deal with all the notifications but it's not you don't want to ever talk to them again and you've fallen out it's just you being able to finally set boundaries and say I can't do this anymore but they're saying because you are able to be social that you're not able to also be an autistic person Mate, it must drive you mad hearing that stuff in big 2021. Still seeing these silly yeah. comments um, is just totally ridiculous. So I guess they're yeah, like... Um, I've seen a few this week. It just comes up, doesn't it? And then goes down again. And I think yeah. this, this, whatever this new study is, I, I read the first paragraph and then I was like, bye, <laughs> not going to not gonna carry on reading this because it's people are just total hacks. But... Um, where did all this sort of start for you then? So, like, obviously you've said, um, you know, it was like a later in life thing in terms of diagnosis and then yeah. after becoming a parent. Like, how... I know it's it's like a bit of a ignorant question, to be fair, to ask, like, how does it feel to grow up? Because you obviously <laughs> yeah. just know your own experience. Um, but, you know, knowing what you know now and looking back, um, you know, are there any things that you think... Actually, as a kid, like in school, for example, or like relationships with your parents or friends as a young person, is there anything now that you look back and see and think, oh, okay, that makes more sense now? Yeah, yeah, loads of it. Like right down to being, I've got memories from very, very young, which when I did all my assessment processes, the occupational therapist that did the final part said like your memory is just so intense she was like you remember stuff in a sensory manner so if I've got a memory I can smell it and feel it and taste it and see how the light is in that memory and it's also it can be hard because you actually feel like you're immersed back in that memory and you're there again so obviously she said that's connected to like any traumatic incidences in particular so she said you know that plays a big factor in your mental health Uh, but going right back to childhood she talked about how I used to use sleep as a coping mechanism so if we went to a noisy family party I wouldn't be the typical autistic child putting their hands over their ears and you know getting stressed out I'd get a pile of coats and make a nest and I'd sleep through the entire party like I can remember waking up and my granddad having a strippergram, which is just classic Doncaster 70s pub party. And oh my God. I just slept through <laughs> it all with my Roger Rabbit teddy, oblivious to I don't know how long we were there. And then at the end, my dad just sort of, you know, pulled all these coats off till he found me and scooped me up and took me home in the car. And even now, my family joke about my ability to just sleep at the drop of a hat and it has always been a coping mechanism and I can remember it right through from toddlerhood um 
right through my teen years. My brother used to laugh because I actually put holes in my duvet cover from just sleeping in it too much. He was just like, you've made your actual bed threadbare because you just sleep so much. <laughs> you know, everyone else was up and about doing stuff and socialised. And I was reading through my mum's Danielle Steele collection at the speed no one knows and then just napping. That's all I ever did. Straight through uni, I probably only attended about 20% of lectures and seminars across the whole three years because I just couldn't attend but never knew why I couldn't attend obviously I do now um and I'd just stay home and sleep because it just felt like a really good way to just pass time because I didn't really know what else to do around it um and yeah there's just loads of instances at school I was not the popular girl but I managed to remain on the circle of the popular girl so I managed to avoid any actual you know I think people knew I was odd but I think I managed to pull it off by masking enough of what they were doing and just be a bit different and quirky and silly and I fitted in with the boys a lot because I just was more more the class clown so I think I managed to avoid that being singled out but also we know you're not quite one of us so I think as soon as GCSEs were done I just stopped talking to all of them it was like the contract was terminated (laughs) we didn't need to ever speak again after this so yeah that was sort of something that I think it felt really hard at the time sort of trying to keep up with everybody and I wasn't fashionable but I dressed like you said I dressed like a pulp video and I think I always have dressed a little bit like a music video and I probably transgressed from Spice Girls to pulp somehow along the way and I think I just did it enough of my own way that people just accepted that it was me but also I was never fully embraced by anyone in school I don't think I had like singular friends that I'd get attached to and we'd sort of go together for a year and then the friendship had just ended I'd never really know why I still don't (laughs) you know just sort of float about till somebody else would pick me up and hang out with me yeah it's one of those things like looking back on it I kind of go yeah that makes sense now that I don't know that I probably just didn't understand all the social rules and the passing trends and fashions to get involved with but I could watch it enough and do it and copy it enough to sort of fit in and then by by sixth form I did the opposite and flipped and just said oh well I'm going to be the opposite of all the popular people and now I'm going to be the weird kid so that's what I did and just made a new identity out of the opposite of what I didn't like doing (laughs) that makes sense yeah definitely and like I mean I know I know you IRL (laughs) yeah um Selena I don't I don't know if you guys are connected on social or anything but um Sarah the the way that you dress is amazing like even before we knew each other like I knew yeah. you as always looking that girl. Like, yeah, you always looked <laughs> so clothes. cool. Always really colourful. And like were you working at Freshman's or something like that? Yeah. Or one of the Yeah, so you worked in the forum and I worked on the edge of the forum. Yeah. Uh, so I was like in the freshman's clothes shop on the outside unit. Yeah, and you always like when I, whenever I would see you, you would look like you were just existing in a different decade or like yeah that's what it's always felt like I I didn't really feel like I knew how to be like everybody else so I eventually just found the things I like which again 
linking it into autism and now realising that these particular things are special interests, focused interests, whatever people want to call them. So pulp, obsessed with pulp, I decide I'll dress like I'm from a pulp video. And I think once Exposed magazine in Sheffield took a photograph of me in the street, so they're like, what are people wearing today kind of thing. And my friend still laughs about it. Now, weirdly enough, she was also diagnosed autistic in adulthood just not long after me. And we'd been friends prior to this. And we sort of existed in this sort of little bubble where we were weird with each other. And then now we're like, ha ha, this is why <laughs> we were just destined to be together. Um, and she still laughs about it now because everyone else was like dead cool. And then I was wearing like a blue pinafore with pink tights and purple leg warmers and some like little silver high heels. And they said, oh, what's your fashion inspiration? And I was like, my little pony. And she was just like, as if anybody else is going to say that their fashion inspiration is my little pony. But <laughs> it is. Like, I still collect them. I still clean them up. And just looking at the colours makes like my eyeballs feel really happy. So I just pick clothes that look like my little ponies would wear them and still do it. And again, that's something that, I sort of normalised or made it look less intense than it probably is. But the fact that I'm a 39-year-old woman that loves My Little Ponies and has got tubs of them lying around a house because she conditions the hair and sets them in curlers to make them all pretty again. It's just something that I do. But a lot of people my age probably don't do that and probably think, why is she doing that? Like, does she make money from it? And it's like, no, it has no financial gain. It's just something that I enjoy doing. And I think that's another thing that people think that everything you do is got to be making you money somehow. And I think that was a big step in after my diagnosis being like, what are the things that I can do to make myself feel better? And a lot of them didn't revolve around making money. I've got no interest. I've never had an interest in having a career as such. And that was always something that I thought was odd about me, you know, everybody going into uni and coming out like oh, I'm gonna do this I'm gonna do that and I was just kind of like well I went to university because I was doing well at A levels and the head of sixth form forced me to apply but I didn't really know what I was doing I just got railroaded into a lot of things I think growing up because I just looked around what everybody else was doing or what somebody in authority told me to do so the teachers if they said do this I'd be like oh okay then because you know what you're doing and I don't so yeah, I went to uni and I've never utilised my degree because I don't. I went through clearing in the end because I just panicked and cancelled all my offers and just went through clearing because I didn't know what else to do. And all these are things that when I look back, I think this is because you were struggling because of your autistic way, thought patterns and that you just didn't quite understand what was going on around you, but you just picked the best person that looked like they were coping and tried to do what they were doing. In terms of class, like, do you feel that there's any kind of correlation to do with, like, neurodiversity and also, like, the ability to study or, like you were saying there, to select a career or to think, right... I'm going to do this and I'm going to go make loads of money and I'm going to kind of provide and, and do all this sort of stuff. Like, do you feel like, for example, being an autistic person may actually hinder you in being able to make money? Or like, if we talk about class specifically, to 
you know, this idea of like transcending your class or like having more money and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Like, do you see it being a thing that may actually prevent people from kind of getting out of poverty? Yeah, I think it can do because if you, some people can utilize their special interests and, you know, find a great way of living and supporting themselves by using something that's not draining their social battery as such everything does but you know they can find ways to incorporate their interests and you know navigate a way through but if you're starting off with not much money it's hard to start up something like that so you're probably taking a pay cut from what you could be doing by getting paid by somebody else let's say if you wanted to go self-employed you'd be you know that's probably one of the best routes that you could go down in terms of limiting people pressuring you around you intentionally or unintentionally because you're sort of in control of your own time and stuff then and your workload but again it's very hard to make the mega books doing it you just you know I think a lot of autistic people that I've spoken to in sort of communities since I've been diagnosed and while I was waiting to be we're all just happy making enough to survive um, because if you push yourself further for more and more and more, if you just hit that barrier where you burn out and just go, I can't do this anymore, you've got a further drop to fall down because, you know, you've created this sort of bigger step that you've gone up. Um, and I, I was the first family member to go to university like I say because I just did what everyone in my year group was doing um and so I didn't really have any concept of what you meant to do at university and where it's meant to get you like what job should I have got as a result of this and I didn't know how to transfer the skills that I supposedly had and how to transfer that into a job application. I've never been successful at understanding how you make a job application to strangers. I just don't understand how you do that. Like it's, I don't know, I was always taught at school, you know, those really formal writing skills in English classes. And I just thought you still had to do that. But then I'm like, maybe this isn't the way that you get a job. I just don't know, because I've only ever really worked in retail jobs, because that was the safest thing I could do by just getting immersed in the actual job and doing it so um selena you will i'm sure yeah. love to hear that sarah is also a retail friend yes i'm the more i hear about you sarah i'm like how, how have we not met <laughs> <laughs> even the color scheme honestly selena I had a, a, another question similar. It's kind of similar yeah. to what Em just asked, but it relating to class because obviously Em was talking about that study where they were saying like women can't be autistic. Yeah, and it, it you know it's known that it's a lot harder for women to get diagnosed. But do you think as well because they say like um because women can mask it well, and you were saying you were just mimicking people because you didn't know how to get along. Yeah, um, but. Do you think as well the fact that because we were earlier talking about being working class and being told to like put up and shut up and like someone's yeah, got it worse? Do you think that also it. played a part in you yeah. just kind of like bumbling along? It. Yeah, yeah. I think it is just it's a case of know your place and stay in it and just keep going. And that's what it felt like. Just 
you know, treading water, just keep going, just keep going. And then that's what working was like. You just, I was going, working and just begging to get to the end of the day without a mystery shopper, without an audit coming, you know, all these horrible things that just put pressure on everybody. And then being undiagnosed autistic and thinking, how can I survive this, basically? It was just fraught with stress. But having been brought up to just don't talk about it, just get on with it, you know, other people have got it worse. Someone might have got a 1% mystery shop, so you're 30%'s fine sort of thing, you know, just keep going. And I think that sort of upbringing does affect probably why I lived with diagnosed mental illnesses as a I was mentally ill with depression and anxiety but so it wasn't a misdiagnosis but it wasn't a complete diagnosis um but that was what was expected of me rather than you know no one would have ever thought you know hang on let's have a look into this a little bit maybe she's autistic like nobody would have ever nobody has ever thought that apart from other autistic people that have experienced similar growth lines in their life and similar experiences and I think the more people that start to get diagnosed in later life should be the thing that's affecting diagnosis and assessment processes for the younger generation so they're not getting missed but like Emma said it's just they're still making up weird researchers and saying oh it's women aren't autistic or if you play with your children they won't become autistic and it's like they don't become autistic they are because if they're neurotype you know it can different behaviors can delay the point at which you get diagnosed which me being told to just get on with my life and stop complaining is what led me to being a grown-up that didn't get diagnosed till later on until something shook their life up to the point that they couldn't coast by which is pretty much what I was doing I think you just I do the bare minimum that I have to do without making stuff too hard for myself but then having a baby it was like I can't coast this like I've actually got to try and do a good job at it it's like I can't just pretend I know what I'm doing and I think that has been something that a lot of people have said is a familiar concept that the actual obviousness of their autism doesn't show until sort of a trigger in their life happens and it's like you sort of get flipped over and you go oh, I can't go on anymore as I was going on because it's kind of an inauthentic way that you've been living because you constructed that way of living and it's not natural or sustainable and then eventually something just goes right you have to kind of deal with everything now or like I had a burnout basically that was sort of pre-diagnosis because I just couldn't keep turning up to work in a cafe and getting shouted at and things like that because another key part of my experience of autism is I've got a strong sense of justice and I don't understand people being mean to each other for no reason so if you're a retail person you know that people can just come in and just be mean to you for no reason and yeah. it can yeah it can just completely throw you off your track for the day the week you know it one bad event at work can just undo all the good that you've felt for weeks and 
so that was really hard do, turning up and doing that every day or like every day that I had to work and then trying to come home and be a good mum which is the person I wanted to be but was struggling to because all these other influences in my life were just completely burning me out. So right at the beginning when we first started talking you said about um, you were proud of yourself for like advocating for yourself yeah. in terms of getting a diagnosis like what what happened there then you know you you just said now you had a period of burnout like what yeah. what were the steps that that you took to getting that diagnosis like what what did it look like for you and and obviously as you said there weren't people there just going oh let's just have a little check for Sarah it was like no <laughs> I'm gonna have to yeah. do this myself so yeah I'm keen to like hear a bit more about what you had to do and um and what it looked like so basically with the friend that I messaged that kick-started it all by me saying please help me and show me some concrete information about autism and I'm going to read it all and see if it applies to me and it did so I basically made a list of the DSM-5 criteria and how specific examples of my life applied to each thing and I wrote it down on this big sway piece of paper and I booked a doctor's appointment. I didn't tell even my husband because you do just think someone's going to say, you, why are you doing this? And you're just going to be like, because I want to feel better. But it's really hard to try and explain that to somebody else. So I thought I'm going to do the appointment first. And if the doctor doesn't laugh at me, because again, person of authority, he obviously knows more than anybody. If he doesn't laugh at me, then I can tell my husband and tell him that the process is on the way. So I went to the appointment and I just cried the entire list at him in the appointment room and sweated and was just really sort of uncomfortable and weird. And he said, yes, that does all sound like it indicates you're autistic. Go and fill in this AQ10 questionnaire at home and bring it back in two weeks. I think he wanted me to probably go home and think whether I wanted to keep going with asking for a diagnosis. So I went and did the little questionnaire thing and took it back for him. And he filled it all in on his computer and said, yes, you indicate that you're on the spectrum. I'll forward you on to the adult autism services here. So we did that. That's when I told my husband over text, because even though I've been with him for years and years, I still find it really hard to initiate a verbal conversation with anybody that's going to possibly make me feel uncomfortable so I would just rather never say it so I texted him from work and said I'm doing this and he just said oh that makes sense <laughs> I was like again so when you get the chance to say I think this might be me people then go oh actually yes certain points of this are making sense but they probably never would have pieced it all together themselves so instantly had his support on it and I then could talk to him more openly about how and why certain things fitted and why how they affected me and like I have problems with crossing the road and I never had this problem till I had my child and then suddenly I felt wholly responsible for a small person therefore anything is a threat to me so crossing a road of is the threat and I panic and I have to find a pedestrian crossing and I can't just cross at the road and I, it's like I can hear everything around me and I can see but I can't 
see the cars clearly and I panic and my husband used to get really annoyed with me if we were trying to cross a road and I'd been you know going we need to find a crossing I can't cross here and then after explaining to him that how autism affects this sort of high sensory problem like high alert hypervigilance he was like this all makes sense now and instantly he started just helping me and just we'd find a pedestrian crossing together and we wouldn't have this sort of bickering about it because he previously didn't understand why I was getting so worked up about crossing a road when I never really had before but it was like the catalyst was becoming a responsible human being and having to learn how to cross a road properly made it really hard for me to do it but it was hard for me to explain that to him without the doctor having given me the green light to say yes you might be autistic because of that imposter syndrome I never felt I could say this is why I struggled to cross a road because I thought people would laugh and say you're wrong basically um so it was GP and then husband supporting me um and I was still in part-time work at a cafe and I was just gradually getting more and more burnt out going into work every day and dealing with sort of being in charge of a group of people that I didn't want to be in charge of. I wanted to only be in charge of sort of my child and my family. I didn't want to go into work and count money and use safes and all those scary things. Like it was just too much pressure all on top of me. Uh, And I basically just cracked at work one day my boss said you okay and I just hid in a fridge and started crying because I was like there's nowhere for me to hide except for this fridge so I just sort of got in the fridge with my head and she she was great my boss she was just like I'll cut you down to one shift a week just until you feel better stuff like this you know I'll do anything to make your time at work easier and keep you on my husband who's got his own business was just like just quit and come and work for me because we can organize what works for you as a workload so that you can balance this feeling of being the best mum because you've not got all this extra stuff weighing you down so while I was awaiting the diagnosis process which is very long they sort of sent me a letter saying you're on a list to go on a list which was exciting um, because the waiting list so long they just basically say yeah we know you want an appointment but we can't even put you on the proper waiting list yet because it's so big uh, so I started working with my husband and it was like a weight lifted because I didn't have that stranger danger feeling you know where you're going into work with you know your work friends and you get on and you have a laugh but they're not your family and you don't feel 100% safe with them and I didn't have have that anymore so it made my sort of home life and my self-care ability increase because I wasn't stretched so far doing bits and bobs of everything um and then I just waited and waited and then they got me in eventually it was about 18 months to two years waiting list and I saw an assistant psychologist for the first appointment and we spoke for two hours about my entire childhood up to my recent employment basically and it was really hard work doing it Um, and I just cried a lot because it was basically like just going to therapy but being told that you're only allowed one appointment and you've got to get everything out in one big go so that's kind of what I did just did that appointment just dropped it all out and then she basically just 
tots up everything that she thinks applies. And then they give you a, a score and say, yes, you have scored high enough to move to the next level. So you then wait again for them to give you another appointment, which I did, uh, which is stressful because it's worse than the first appointment because you think, well, I've done half of it. I've got to do the second half, which is kind of now feels more important because what if they now say no after I've done all this beginning bit and they've said maybe, but then they say no. And then on the morning of the second appointment, I got a voicemail, which I don't do well with voicemails and technology and things like that. They stress me out. I had a voicemail and all it said was, oh, we've got to cancel your appointment today. We'll be in touch. That And I was like, huge, huge meltdown because that was just too much unknown change of my routine. And I had so much pinned on this appointment and thinking, I might actually know a bit more about myself and be able to use this as the first stepping stone into feeling better and learning how to make my life a bit easier and more manageable. So I rang them up just I don't really express like high emotions to strangers but I did this time and I just howled down the phone at this poor woman saying how can you cancel four hours before with an autistic person we don't deal well with change we don't deal well with our routine being changed in particular even you know I knew that this day this was happening and now my whole week's just broken in half because now I just can't go on and she just sort of was really kind about it and they rang me back that afternoon and said we've got you in in two days basically so I was like hey so I went in for that one and that was with the occupational therapist and she collates all the information from the first appointment with the psychologist and then she does an interview with you based more on what your life is like now what your sensory processing areas are like and she adds it all up basically and she delivers the diagnosis in the appointment which is nice you don't have to sort of wait again after that Uh, and again that was it wasn't as hard as talking about your childhood for two hours but it was more it was still hard work going through it all with her and her you know sort of wheedling into little bits and you know this is the woman though who can then start to untangle it so you divulge it all to her she adds it all up with all the prior knowledge from the interview she's read with the psychologist and puts it together and she said yes you are autistic under the old criteria you would have been classed as aspergers which we don't use anymore and i'm glad they don't use it because of all the sort of connotations and sort of i don't know it's not very nice um i prefer that it is just autistic and but they do write on your forms high functioning which again it's just you know it's only high functioning because of how the world sees you not how you see yourself in the world so I still again I don't really like this sort of approach to labeling autistic people as functioning because that's not your view of yourself it's how they view you as fitting in their society rather than whether you are because your functioning levels can change constantly up and down and you know something you could do on Monday you might not again be able to do that later on in the week because other factors have changed your ability 
capacity to deal with certain things so you just have to remove certain stresses from your life and things uh, but she delivered that and she sort of you have a half an hour chat afterwards where they say how do you feel about your diagnosis and sort of a bit of a wrap up on her findings and like I said earlier on in the chat about her saying how my memories have like a sensory aspect to them where I can't just go oh that was a nice day or that was a bad day it's like my whole body just remembers it so it's quite it feels quite physical and it's exhausting remembering stuff sometimes um she does that does a little chat with you and it honestly felt when I came out of that appointment like I'd run a marathon I felt so hungry and just like wired I couldn't think what I needed to do next so I just walked from the clinic to town my husband was at work and I just texted him on the way and I was just like diagnosed and I just got there and I just went and bought a can of fizzy pop and like a bag of nuts or something I was just like in the shop just trying to put energy back in my body because it felt like I'd been completely drained by just I don't know trying to prove to somebody that I was autistic by doing something that I as an autistic person find really hard which is going and sitting in a room with a stranger and talking to them for two hours um but sort of they said oh you know some people like different reactions some people sort of feel grief and sadness you know that their life might be different or why have they had to live to this point in their life not knowing and now they've only just started to get answers but quite lucky I never really got any of those sort of sadness feelings I was just so relieved and buzzing to just it felt like a full stop of all that stress and not knowing and then now being able to learn a way to understand why stuff can be a certain way and what I can do to make that feel better for me and in turn that makes it better for my family because I'm a stronger version of myself than the one that was really unsure and was always thinking maybe but I could never fully commit to the strategies and things because I never knew if it was actually true so it was just really nice to get that validation as other people have said that somebody has just said you're right and it was just nice to know that I think um you kind of answered what my next question was it was like how did it feel once you got your diagnosis but obviously you were saying yeah. that it kind of validated you and made you yeah. yeah it just for me part of my autism is like a rule driven way of thinking and it felt like even though I know and believe self-diagnosis is valid and I know self-diagnosed people that haven't chased a diagnosis for reasons that are suited to their family or their lifestyle, but they are, and that's fine. But for me, I felt like I needed that little tick that told me I could go on with it. And like that's how I've always lived my life. You know, like I liked the teacher to tick my work. So they'd said that I'd done a good job. And I feel like I needed that to make peace with myself I think it would have taken a lot longer for me to adapt my life to make it more comfortable for myself if I'd have not had that little stamp of officiality off of a doctor saying you've passed (laughs) you know that's how it felt like 
you're not passing the test, but that's what it felt like that people didn't think I was making it up or that I was, I don't know, you, that again, I don't know if this is a class thing that you're a girl, you're a drama queen, part of the whole shutting up and getting on with your life thing, just it was nice to be told that I wasn't being a drama queen and I wasn't crying for nothing and I could move on then. It was it was just like a, right, that bit's done now. What can I do to get better? And it's been, it'll be two years in December that I've been diagnosed and it's life's much better now because I can just say straight away, I've isolated a problem. What can I do to make this better? And action it usually. What would you say to people to make the world, whether that's like work or friendships or relationships, to be more inclusive, like for you specifically? Because obviously not for like yeah, everybody. People who are artistic, yeah, because you know, everybody's different. So yeah, yeah, like what 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 have you found? What adjustments or even things that things to do and not to do? Yeah, just one thing is is just if you can't see it, it doesn't mean it's not there. And I think part of my sort of late teens, early 20s, I drank a lot, partied a lot. And I think that was a way of me trying to make my problems more visible to people around me. So they think she's a bit of a wreck. She's got problems and they'd be a bit more careful with you or, you know, they sort of knew that you probably hung over because you'd been out partying and stuff. And I think that can be something in the autistic community that a lot of people have said yeah my younger days were my party days and now I'm older and understand myself I don't do that anymore but it's kind of a way of making yourself more visible to your friendship groups that you might be feeling a bit different a bit more sensitive to stuff whereas now it's just just because you can't see me struggling doesn't mean that I'm not and I've got friends that you know just check up on me now and again but I don't have to be performing and coming to meals out and parties and things like that anymore and they understand why I'm not doing it and it's just that level of understanding not questioning and not judging you for not wanting to do the things that they might want to do because you don't want to do it because you're not like oh I don't want to do it because it's rubbish I just don't want to do it because it's stressful for me as an autistic person to go and do it and like this week me and my husband went to see Nick Cave at City Hall and it was the first time I've been out of my house after like 5pm or whatever for nearly two years and obviously he's got the inside knowledge on how to look after me but he did everything he could he made sure I had an aisle seat at the City Hall so that if I had to go I could get out without having to lap dance 30 strangers down you know, down the row at City Hall to get out. <laughs> you know, I'd rather <laughs> myself than try and get past all these people. So it's like I have to try and weigh up what is the worst possible scenario and what can I do in advance to stop that happening. And it's like people like that putting, helping you put your adjustments in place. Like when we go to the cinema, he'll always look on the seating plan and be like, right we've got an aisle here you go down the stairs because I'm terrible with like maps and stuff so he shows me a picture of the cinema and I'm like I don't know where the screen is and so and they'll say this is the aisle seat you go down here's the stairs you turn around to go out the door so that I know in advance how I could get to the toilet or you know nothing is me in a panic trying to work out what's happening so 
things like that just make the world a bit more accessible not just expecting that because I don't look disabled it doesn't mean I just automatically know how to do things because sometimes I don't like I'll go hungry because I won't go in a cafe and there order a sandwich because that social interaction with the person at the counter is too much unknown for me to deal with that on a lot of days I just think I would rather not eat for three hours and just get home and eat something without having to go in and have that difficult sort of small talk with a stranger and I always inevitably do something and say like three years when I'm saying cheers and thank you at the same time and then I'm like afterwards and it's just all things like that that I just try and avoid and it's just nice if people can accept that of you and and just think just everybody should just be kinder to each other that's my view on the world and you know not judge people if you see them going in an accessible toilet or using a plastic straw which everybody knows is bad for the environment but some people from a sensory perspective have to they can't bear the feeling of the glass on their teeth or anything like that and I just think the more I learn about it from actually autistic people in the community the more I see people out in the world and just think we don't know what they're experiencing right now and if everyone could just leave each other to it and just be kind and not cause friction when there doesn't need to be then everybody could just probably get on a lot easier it's that people that feel the need to call you out on something in public without knowing and you'd kind of like the fear of using an accessible toilet in case somebody judges you for it and those people are the worst full stop bold italic underline everything the worst people just need to mind their business you just like i use it at the cinema because i can't handle the space in the shared toilet because it's like the hand dryers are at both ends of the room so you can't escape it and the water sprays out at you out of the taps and stuff and I just think physically yes I could use that toilet but mentally that's gonna drain my ability to sort of exist for the rest of the day by doing certain things they make it harder for you to do stuff later and it's all about conserving your energy for the stuff that really counts and the more stuff you do that's hard for you you just end up like a little blob on the sofa like I can't go on like wanting to shut the curtains but you can't even get up and do that because you've just done that much stuff that's drained you that you can't go on anymore it's been so interesting Sarah thanks so much for sharing your story um I think you know there's so much to be said about just people thinking about their intent you know like yeah. what, what is your intent when you feel the need to like call someone out in public for something you know, yeah. it's so much more about them and their them just being either like wanting to yeah. be morally superior or just basically just being a, a total meanie. You know, yeah. it's more about them being a meanie than it is about anyone else. And people just need to mind the business. Listen, thank you so much for, for coming on this episode, for uh, bearing your soul on a Saturday night. And, yeah, thank you. I hope it's not been too much of a ramble. That's another thing that I just go off on tangents. (laughs) Mate, not at all. And we love a ramble. It's been brilliant.